0: Good morning. We are Jameis, Emily,
1: Elia, Lena, and Adeline.
0: And we are the Hutchins family. Welcome to this morning's Sunday gathering. Jameis and Emily have been going to New Community for 18 years and helped facilitate the premarital mentoring program and have been connected with small groups over the last 18 years. As a family, we enjoy traveling and exploring, hiking, listening to
2: music, playing board games, and listening to audiobooks.
0: We hope you enjoy this morning's discussion. We are so grateful to be worshiping with you.
1: My Lord, what a morning. You have raised up a mighty nation and a mighty people. We are strong, proud, and yours. My Lord, what a morning. You have brought us through the dips and hollows, up and down the streets, over the hills and mountains, and through the valleys.
2: We are strong, proud, brave, and yours. My Lord, this morning we have come to celebrate you, to affirm ourselves as
1: images of you, in all your glory, and to say, yes Lord, we are strong, proud, brave, and yours in every way. We count it
3: all joy.
2: New community, we're going to take a few minutes and enter a space of reflection. Let me begin by reading a poem from an anonymous author. I sought my soul, but my soul I could not see. I sought my God, but my God eluded me. I sought my brother, and I found all three. Take a few minutes and reflect on these two questions. In what ways does an intimate relationship with the community of faith allow you to see experience and hear from God. What steps will you take this week to experience God through the other?
3: Good morning, new community. So glad that you could join us this morning, or whenever it is that you're listening to this podcast. I want to take a moment and uh, make two quick comments. Uh, pray, and then we will jump into our particular passage this morning. Uh, first of all, we are hoping to regather in person again soon. We will get you details over the next couple of weeks. Um, but we are anticipating and looking forward to the time we can be together. Uh, We'll go over protocols, we'll go over registration, we'll go over everything that uh, needs to be in place to ensure uh, us being able to gather safely. Uh, But be praying and uh, be anticipating the time we will be together again soon. Second thing, I want to encourage you to lean into the Lenten season. Uh, to engage with it, uh, to make this time a time of intentional pursuit of Jesus Christ, uh, to make sure that we are leaving no stone unturned uh, for us to pursue and know and love and interact with and hear from the Spirit In fact, this week, I was, uh, even today, was talking to uh, someone in our community, and they were describing the ways that they're leaning into the Lenten season, specifically journaling every morning, uh, thinking about uh, opportunities for gratitude, uh, asking God to reveal Himself to them throughout the day, and then every evening, writing down these divine moments or sacred experiences of Jesus throughout the day. Another individual is taking every Tuesday throughout Lent to fast. I know another person who's taking every Wednesday, not asking God during a time of fasting to give vision and direction and hope uh, for the future and uh, just for uh, individual spiritual growth. Others are taking time to take to practice gratitude. Whatever it is that you are feeling you should do, I would encourage you to do something, to be intentional. Uh, we want to make sure that we are people that aren't just um, focused on Uh, each other or on community, but we want to be people who engage, people who strive to know, love, and pursue Christ, and may this season be a season of doing so for you. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will begin to look at a particular parable uh, that Jesus spoke uh, that I think is so powerful and has uh, some unique insights for us this morning. God, we uh, invite you into our lives in a unique way this morning. uh, We pray uh, for insight. We pray for understanding. Uh, We pray that we might be able to honestly ask ourselves some hard questions uh, about our own relationship with you, about the way we view uh, things of value or the way we view grace. Uh, May you uh, speak to us in this moment. Uh, May you open our eyes to see uh, that we might know you more clearly and that we might live into all that you are calling us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to, this morning, create a scenario for you to imagine. Imagine that you just won $1 million, but there's only one catch. You must share your winnings with a complete stranger. Now you get to decide how the money is split, but the other person can reject the offer. If the offer is rejected, both of you walk away with nothing. You only get one chance. The two of you have never met and will never see each other again. The question is, how much do you offer? Now, before you answer the question, The most logical thing to do would be to offer something like $1,000. If the person refuses it, they get nothing. So logic says that they would accept the offer. The problem is this, that these things don't work according to logic. So before we move on, what would you offer? I want you to think of a number right now. Now, the interesting thing about this experiment is that it's not based on logic, but rather based on value. The individuals in the experiment are looking through the lens of worth or value. This means that a person does not accept the offer based on logic. Also, the person giving the offer does not base it on logic. Everything is based on value. See, your offer speaks to the value of the person you're offering the money to. Your offer also speaks to the value you hold in yourself and what amount is below you or above you to offer. See, if this was the same situation and you were splitting the money with a computer and you were to offer $1,000, the answer is a simple yes. Yes. If you offer the computer a hundred dollars, the answer again would be yes. If you offered 10, you would receive the same positive answer. Any offer over zero is a positive offer resulting in a computer accepting because see it's based on logic and not value. But this is not so with us. This experiment was performed with real people being offered real money And the results on average were that most people receiving an offer of less than 20% of the total amount rejected the offer. Now, in this case, an offer of anything less than $200,000 would be expected to be rejected. That's staggering. See, we make judgments and determine fairness and worth based on perceived value, not on logic. I want you to hold on to that idea for a moment. And we've been in this series on the life of Jesus, and I have been so intrigued lately by the upside-down nature of the kingdom. For example, you have the parable of the treasure. Uh, it's a story of a man selling all he has to acquire a field with a treasure in it. And this is often seen through the lens of us giving everything we have to acquire the treasure. We put ourselves in the place of the treasure seeker. But see, God is the treasure seeker, and he's given everything through his son Jesus to acquire you because he values you. That seems a bit upside down. Or the upside-down nature of the Beatitudes that speaks to those who are blessed, but then lists many people that don't seem to be blessed. Or you read, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That seems to be upside-down or backwards. Or give your life if you want to find it. Or if you want to lead others, you must be the servant of all. All of these things seem upside down. The kingdom and its values are upside down. And no clearer picture of this exists than in the parable of the workers. There's this parable in Matthew 20 that has Uh, staggering importance for us as followers of Jesus. The parable reads like this, Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for denarii a day, he sent them into his vineyard, And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said, and to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, "'Because no one has hired us.' He said to them, "'You go into the vineyard too.' And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, "'Call the laborers and pay them their wages, "'beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received the denarii. Now when those hired first came, They thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the same. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And he replied to one of them, Friend, am I doing you no wrong? Or friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarii? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is a story of the kingdom and its values seeming upside down. I want to take a moment and just share some insights intended to be practical in nature uh, to really reflect on our understanding of this idea of value. The first thought is this, that discontent arises from comparison. One of the central themes in this passage is the idea, idea of fairness Or lack thereof. By nature of our humanity, we long for fairness, that everyone gets what they deserve. But the master of the house gave every worker the same wage, regardless of the time worked. The text says the workers grumbled at the master of the house. The discontent had nothing to do with the pay, it had everything to do with the comparison of the wage. They were given what was expected, but they did not like the comparison with them and the other workers. See, comparison often leads to disappointment. It can lead to frustration, grumbling, anxiety, depression. Comparison often makes us feel like we got the short end of the stick. No part of our life is truly safe from the discontent that comparison can create. And if I'm being honest, comparison at any time of life can be challenging, but even more so in the midst of a pandemic, which I think heightens. Our awareness of comparison. We tend to compare all kinds of areas of our life. Take for example, our relationships. Some of us are comparing the ability to get together with friends with others not leaning into that ability or some struggling with their family of origin and the tension that has been created both politically or um, socially, some struggling during this season with singleness, others struggling with their partner. Relationship can be an area where we compare our relationships to the relationships of others. Some of us, maybe it's related to vocation. We find ourselves comparing the job we have with a job that someone else might have or the fact that we don't have a job. Maybe we have a less desirable job than someone else we're comparing to, or the expectations expected of us are different than the expectations of a co-worker. Maybe we're comparing our work environment to the work environment of another. Health can be another area of comparison. It might be A frustration with an ongoing ailment, an injury that seems to keep creeping up, a a sickness that's not being overcome. Uh, For some, it's with weight loss or weight gain. For others, it's a perception of body type. We struggle with comparison when it comes to stuff, the things we own. The house we have, the car we drive, the apartment we live in, the income we have, the gadgets, all of those things become areas of comparison. Uh, Some of us are even comparing the seasons of bad luck we seem to run into. Maybe our car has recently broken down or the house seems to always have needed updates or repairs. Everyone else's house seems to be completely fine. Everyone else's car doesn't seem to get a flat tire every three weeks. And we compare the situation we're in or our health or our relationships or our employment or our stuff. And we find ourselves struggling because we tend to come out on the disappointing side of comparison. And generally when we struggle with one of these areas, it's because we're comparing and we come up short. See, if we came up on top in our comparison, there'd be no worry about it. We might even feel like we earned it or somehow the favor of God was upon us. But if we come up short, it feels like it's not fair. And that's when the tension arises. See, the full day workers compared the wage and in the end, they were disappointed. But see, the master, it's not that he was not fair, but they felt like he wasn't fair. He overlooked our work. He undervalued our effort. He favored the part-day worker over us, the all-day worker. And see, in our disappointment, we often, like in the parable, direct our disappointment to God. It somehow becomes God's fault that God overlooked our situation. So I'm going to ask you a difficult question. Where are you currently disappointed with God? I would encourage you to examine your life. What areas are you finding yourself currently disappointed with God, feeling as if God in some way has let you down? I want you to take a moment this week and sit with that question. And then ask this, what must you do to alter your spirit of comparison? What must you do to get outside of the mindset of comparing your life to the life of those around you? And how can you move from comparing to gratitude? All of this leads to a second insight in the text. And that's this, the kingdom values grace over wage. See, grace is unmerited favor. It's getting something we don't deserve. Wage is earned through striving. See, the parable suggests that wages and grace stand in opposition to each other. As much as we may say that we're all about the gospel and the gospel is all about grace, perhaps we find ourselves still believing in wage, earned favor. See, the wage-based worldview allows little room for grace. If we have a wage-based perspective, the last are last and the first are first because that's what's fair, That's what's been earned. See, grace goes against our American sensibilities. It doesn't seem right in a capitalistic world. Because grace is dangerous. Grace is upside down. Grace says that the last will be first and the first will be last. And as much as we want to say that's what we want, we often don't really want it. See, the degree to which this parable strikes you as unfair is the degree to which your life and worldview is based on wage. I would bet that there are many of us, if we are honest, who are offended by what Jesus says in these 16 verses. We long for stories of grace, but only up to a certain point. So we wish for grace, but we want grace to have a limit. We want the vineyard owner to be gracious, but not too gracious. An, ex- an extra trip back into town is fine, but not a constant back and forth. The sixth hour, the ninth hour, the eleventh hour, maybe pay the late day worker a little, but not equal. See, I'm fine when someone gets an extra blessing, but when someone gets something that I think is completely undeserving and an over-the-top kind of blessing, then maybe I'm not so okay with this idea of grace. This is the tension we feel between a worldview of wage and an understanding of grace. And if we're honest, grace shown to me doesn't seem like that much grace but grace shown to others feels too extravagant see often the grace shown to me doesn't seem that gracious when I'm comparing myself and I compare myself to someone else that I think needs way more grace than me see we all enter into the kingdom and we all enter into a relationship with Jesus based on grace But I think we quickly move from grace to entitlement. We move from this place where we are amazed at the the grace of God to moving to a place where we go, yeah, I belong. I'm in. And you're the one that's on the outside. It was grace for me, but it should probably be something you earn. And you should probably work hard to try to earn God's favor. For some reason, I moved to a place where I feel like it took less grace for me to get in or for me to have relationship or for me to be blessed than for you. So here's a simple little test to see where you might be coming from. The question is this, what day worker do you most relate to? When you read this parable, what day worker do you resonate with? The general guess, majority, relate to the all-day worker. See, we place ourselves in the role of the one who we feel like, who we believe, earned it. We feel like if the worker got there early and has been working hard all day, then the worker deserves what the worker got. He earned it. See, where you are in line interprets how you feel about the parable. The worker you consider to be yourself in the story speaks to your view of grace and wage. So a couple questions. What do you find most amazing about grace? Spend some time this week thinking about what it is that you find amazing about grace. Maybe ask yourself how can you shift your focus from wage and earning the favor and the pleasure of God of of somehow trying to appease an angry God that really isn't all that angry and moving that perspective to one of grace and exception of this gift from God. We may think this parable is really about comparison or about grace, but the parable is really about the master. It's really about the amazing character of the master. God does, again, what is upside down, what is unexpected. The First thing he does is he goes out and hires the workers himself. This would have been a job that you could easily send an employee, someone who's Um, able to do the task that he gives them to do, the job would have been beneath the owner. It would have been beneath the master of the house, but instead he goes and he doesn't just go once. He goes multiple times throughout the whole day. This speaks to a couple ideas. One, it speaks to the fact that the workers of the harvest are that valuable that the master puts so much value on the worker So much value on the person that he's willing to go back again and again and again. It also reveals that he is constantly in pursuit of us. He didn't just pursue us in the morning in this story. He didn't just pursue us at noon. He pursued us again And again, and again, and even at the 11th hour, even at the time when work's about to close, when they're about to call it a day, he still is in pursuit of you and I and every one of his children. I think another thing it highlights is that he hires the undesirables. See, the master hires the workers that are still there at the end of the day. In Jesus' time, this would have been those who were weak, those that maybe were disabled, the elderly, perhaps people that are targets of discrimination, such as criminals or people with bad reputation. It might have been those that were most vulnerable or those that were seen as outsiders. They were only willing to hire people that were within the tribe or people that were known rather than outsiders. And the master is the one that hires the overlooked, the undesirable, those that can't provide for themselves. So each time he went back, each time he went back, he wasn't picking the strongest. Maybe those all got picked in the morning. Maybe he wasn't picking the ones with status. He continued to go back till it was those that would have seemed undesirable. And in the end, maybe this story isn't just about, quote unquote, unfair payments. Maybe what the men are really complaining about is that the master has made them equal to the weak, the disabled, the vulnerable, the outsider, the despised. Can you imagine that scene? It isn't just that they all got paid the same. It's that the the worker that worked for one hour and can't even do any work is getting the same amount of pay as me, the same amount of grace as me. That seems incredibly upside down. He's declaring that those that are weakest and infirmed and broken and hurting and criminal and you name it, He's declaring them as having incredible worth. I think we often fail to see the worth that God ascribes to the vulnerable, but God gives the weak value, purpose, meaning. I think a third and final thing that it highlights is that God is crazy generous. The master says that he will be fair to the workers And he is, he's not just fair, he's extravagant. He says that he will be fair when in fact he's not, he's incredibly generous. Barbara Brown Taylor says this, depending on where you are in the line, you can, um, that can sound like powerful good news because if God is not fair, then there is a chance we will get paid more than we are worth that we will get more than we deserve, that we will make it through the doors even though we are last in line, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. I want to read that one more time. Depending on where you are in line, that can sound like powerful good news, because if God is not fair, then there is a chance we will get paid more than we are worth that we will get more than we deserve, that we will make it through the doors, even though we are last in line, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. See, the master doesn't underpay anyone. He overpays. He's generous, crazy generous. So here's a question. How has God shown recently his consistent pursuit of you. Second question, how has he revealed himself to be crazy generous in your life? What are the blessings and the things that you can look on with such gratitude because they are gifts from God? How has God revealed himself to consistently pursue you And how has God revealed himself to be crazy generous to you? My prayer for our community is that we may be people who are driven to gratitude instead of comparison. That we would embrace the gift of grace and cease striving to earn favor. And that we would be overwhelmingly amazed at the generous love of our Father God. That is my prayer. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Lamentations three, twenty-one through 26. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good and those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord.
0: How lonely sits our neighborhood! How we weep bitterly in the night! Our streets mourn, our doors are desolate, our leaders groan!
1: Look, O Lord, and consider! The young and the old are lying on the ground in the streets. Our young men and women have fallen by the sword.
0: For these things we weep. Our eyes flow with tears. Our elders sit in silence. Our young bow their heads to the ground. We seek a comforter, one to
1: revive our courage. Cry aloud to the Lord. Let tears stream down like a torrent. Arise, cry out in the night. Pour out your heart like water before the Lord. Lift up your hands to God for the lives of your children.
0: But we call this to mind, and therefore, we have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord.
2: Well, we have once again come to everyone's favorite part of the service, the announcements. Only one thing I wanna mention this week, but it's certainly an important thing, is it's about the future of in-person Sunday worship services. We mentioned six weeks ago that a committee was formed to begin the discussion of timing and what it will take for Newcom to safely begin regathering. The committee has met several times and we're actively working on finalizing a plan with all the necessary protocol in place to move forward into a new season of worshiping together. We've been very committed to the process and to listening to the spirit in this decision. We're hopeful that we'll have some more solid dates and details in the next week or two. So until then, stay tuned and know that we eagerly await the opportunity to once again worship next to one another. Let us close with this benediction from Isaiah 60 verses 20 through 22. Your sun will never set again and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of sorrow will end then will all your people be righteous and they will possess the land forever they are the shoot i have planted the work of my hands for the display of my splendor the least of you will become a thousand the smallest a mighty nation i am the lord in his time i will do this swiftly go in peace this week new community